and welcome to Machine Learning Engineered. I'm your host, Charlie Yu, and every week I talk to an exceptional data scientist, AI researcher, or software engineer to discover how they bring cutting edge research out of the lab and into products that people love. Before we get started, I want to give a quick shout out to Effective Altruism and the Giving What We Can pledge. I'm not getting paid to say this, but I think these ideas are so important that I want to get the message out. If you're listening to this podcast, most likely you are well into the 1% in the world. By pledging to donate just a small fraction of your income to the most effective charities, you can save the lives of dozens of people living in extreme poverty reduce unnecessary suffering in factory farms, and improve the long-term future of humanity. Join me and over 4,900 others who have pledged to donate over $1.8 billion over their careers by going to givingwhatwecan.org. And with that, let's get on to the show. If you're an engineer working to put machine learning into production, you should definitely subscribe to the Machine Learning Engineered newsletter. Every Thursday, I send out a short email featuring the five most interesting things that I've learned that week. Past issues have included links to articles, research papers, events, and videos, all curated specifically for the busy machine learning engineer who wants to become the best at what they do. To get that in your inbox, go to cu.ai slash newsletter. Again, cyou.ai slash newsletter. My guest today is Josh Albrecht, the co-founder and CTO of Generally Intelligent, an independent research lab investigating the fundamentals of learning across humans and machines. Previously, he was the lead data architect at Adapar, CTO of CloudFab, and CTO of Sorceress, which Generally Intelligent is a pivot from. Josh, welcome to Machine Learning Engineered. Thanks a lot. Really excited to have this conversation. I was uh, just digging into a lot of the research from the blog post that you have on your website, and then from there went into a quite a long rabbit hole on self-supervised learning and, and all of that. So I'm quite excited to dive into it. Yeah, it's been really fun to work on, so happy to share. How did you first get into computer science and what made you decide to pursue it? Mm -hmm. Yeah, so I actually, I think I got into it a similar way to the same way as a lot of people. I like playing uh, video games as a kid. But actually, once I mentioned to my dad, oh, yeah, maybe I'll program games when I'm older. So it's good that I play all these games. And he's like, oh, sure, okay. And once I really wanted a new computer so I could play more video games and better video games. It was pretty expensive if you're in middle school or whatever, so I couldn't really buy it. So I said, oh, dad, give me a new computer so I can play more video games. He's okay, I'll buy you a new computer if you go through all the chapters of this 1,000-page book on C++ and do all the examples. And so I spent every day, every morning in that summer vacation just going through all the examples and working through the book. And by the end of the summer, I made it through the whole thing and I had my new computer. And at that point, it was actually more fun to program games than it was to play them. So yeah, that's actually how I got onto it. And then I, I just spent a bunch of time kind of making my own games. And I, I actually started out making my own renderer from scratch, which wasn't quite as insane as 
it would be today because this was like almost 25 years ago now, I think. And I learned a lot from that. So that was, it was pretty cool. And how old were you when you went through a thousand page C plus book? I was probably in middle school, like somewhere between 12 and 14. I don't remember exactly. Wow. Getting started very early. then. Yeah. <laughs> and when did machine learning start to go and in, come into the picture? I was checking out your page, your research page on uh, University of Pittsburgh and saw that in 2008, all the way back then, you had uh, some machine learning research. Yeah. Yeah, that's right. So originally I, I thought, oh, I'll be a video game programmer. And I worked in the render and I got some, I started making my own games, got people online to come work for me for free. I was like, oh, this is pretty cool. I published some tutorials and I actually got a job doing video game programming that way while I was even in high school, which is a lot better than uh, mowing lawns for making money. So I really enjoyed that. But I realized as I did that, it wasn't really the thing. I didn't want to make a career out of that. Like video game programming, I, I don't know if it's really a great career. I think that there's some definite downsides. And I'd always been interested in AI and the mind and the brain and everything like that. And so when I, pretty early in my undergrad, I actually went to, you know, the professor who, or like the department basically who computational neuroscience research. And I said, like, okay, I want to do research. Said, All right, go here, read this textbook. And I tried, but it just felt like the field was being approached in the wrong way or it just didn't really resonate with me. It wasn't really answering the questions that I wanted to answer. I really wanted to know, like, how does thinking work? How does intelligence work? Like, how does all this stuff actually work? And it was very much, oh, this is how the neurons work and like all the names for everything, but doesn't really answer the question of like, how does this actually work? So instead, I ended up going and doing research with my AI professor from the computer science department. And that was a lot more fun. And we actually, you know, got pretty lucky. And I think pretty much everything we did research on that we submitted got accepted. So that was pretty fun. Yeah. <laughs> and at the journals that we wanted. So I'm like, okay, this is pretty cool. And I actually, because of that, got to do some of my own like research directions as well, which also published into my master's and it was all in machine translation. Um, and machine translation evaluation. And the thing that I did at the end was interfaces for understanding a language that you don't even understand yourself using um, computer tools to do that. So that was, it was pretty fun. I love working on research, but again, it felt, it something didn't feel quite right. It felt we're making this research, but is anyone really going to ever use this tool that I built or read these papers? Like probably not. And so I wanted to have a little bit more of, a, of an impact. And so that's how I got into startups. <laughs> And it seems since since you decided to make that switch into startups, you have done quite a few of them, starting with some not a non ML related one, and then moving slowly and slowly more towards your uh, research interest. I would guess you would say, right? Yeah, I'd say that actually a lot of them. I think the first one was not really related to ML, just because you know I'd already been doing a bunch of ML research. And I was like, oh, I want something new and different. I think a lot of the other ones after that have been pretty close to ML. I think more on kind of the practical side. So I was lucky in that after school because I worked. Uh, remotely for this game company and had done the research and everything i had like enough saved up that i could try starting my own company and so it was, it was fun to get started we made a, a cryptocurrency thing this was back before bitcoin we actually worked with the professor to implement his like uh, cryptocurrency scheme for making anonymous BitTorrent and web browsing which was, was super cool a bunch of people used it i think we got like a million people to come to our website in one week um, like fifty thousand people using it but it wasn't really a very good business so we, we shut that down and then started CloudFab after that. Great. And CloudFab was, after working on it for a few years, uh, could you briefly explain what that was and then its eventual being acquired? Yeah, yeah. So that so we had just come off this thing that was not really making money and we're like, okay, we should really do something a little more practical, something that like people actually pay for. 
one of the things at that time we were, was pretty interesting and, and new is 3D printing and rapid prototyping. And people definitely pay for that. They use it for making all sorts of prototypes of products and new products and everything. And so we made a website where you could just easily upload your file and you could you know, see what it was going to look like, just give you a cost right away. Like this is how much it's going to cost. You could just hit buy and you like get it in the mail a little bit later. We also did this thing where we like work with um, people that had 3D printers where they're already 3D printing something and they can just come put our part in the side. It was like almost free for them to print it. So we got a really good deal on it. So that was how we got started. And then as we grew with it, we realized that the bigger market, like what happens after the 3D printing is the bigger part where people usually do 3D printing for the initial kind of prototype. And then when you really make the product, you're going to use something like injection molding to make a whole bunch of these. And so another thing that we added was much more sophisticated algorithms for predicting, basically machine learning algorithms for predicting the cost of um, creating the actual molds themselves, which is a much more difficult problem. And so one of our uh, companies that we were working with uh, actually decided, oh, actually, this is pretty cool. We'd like to just own this completely ourselves and have it in-house. And so that's how, and we were like, all right, great. That works for us. <laughs> so that's how it went. Yeah, start bootstrapping a marketplace from scratch, as uh, as we know, is extremely difficult. So yeah. I'm sure you were quite happy with that outcome. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> and then now moving on to stuff that you've done more recently. Now, Sorceress, I was uh, just reading briefly about, but in your own words, could you tell maybe the founding story of it, the motivations and the tech, some of the tech behind it? Yeah. Yeah. My co-founder and I, we previously started another company together doing hardware, which terrible idea. Never do that. We only worked on it for a few months, thankfully, but we were looking around for, and thinking like, what do we want to do next? And I think one core thesis for Sorceress is that machine learning, this was back in, I think, 2015 or so, is that machine learning was going to have a huge impact on the world. We didn't really know exactly how it was going to play out, but we were pretty sure that this was going to lead to lots of automation. That was our thesis. It was like lots of things are going to get automated. So we were looking around for, okay, what do we know about that's going to get automated? What do we have some expertise in? And we'd both done a lot of work uh, on recruiting at our previous companies. And we'd seen how like slow and manual it was. And so we were like, all right, yeah, let's do that. <laughs> yeah, I know that uh, it's definitely a huge problem. I was looking at some of the articles that your co-founder, Kendrin, had written about uh, just some of these problems where... Normally recruiting, if you're using an external sourcer, it's maybe only 10% of the candidates are actually excited to talk to the hiring manager. And I know personally, as someone who gets a lot of inbound for this kind of stuff, like the majority, vast majority of these opportunities are not even close to what I would be interested in. Can you talk about how machine learning, how you would frame that problem as one for machine learning in the first place? Yeah, for us thinking about it, okay, what's really the core problem with recruiting. The core thing that's trying to happen, it's like a matching problem, right? Like you have some people that have jobs, you have some people that want jobs, and you need to get like the right people to the right jobs. Okay. So how do you do this big matching between all the jobs and all the people? Really, you need like enough information about the jobs and about the people such that you can do a good job and have a high confidence in this match. And so for us, the way we approached it is let's work directly with the hiring managers at some number of companies and really deeply understand what are they looking for? Who are they looking for? And then what we're going to do that's, that was pretty different than anything else at the time is we would look at everyone else that's possibly out there in the world, find all the information we can about them and try and answer, okay, for this role, which we know a lot about because we really like talked to this person and dug into like, what, are this, what is this person really looking for? What 
who are the absolute best people for this role? And of those people, which people will be really excited to actually work at the company? Because it needs to be, as you said, a two-way match, right? You, it might be that you would be really good at that role, but you really don't want to do that role. So you kind of need to understand both the sides. So for us, it was like a inference problem of how excited is this person going to be about this job? And how excited is the hiring manager going to be about this candidate? And finding an overlap between those two. So that was a really big part of the uh, machine learning was doing that matching. Another big part that we thought would be important over time, we also, we basically took over the whole process. So everything from finding and reaching out and following up to scheduling. And so we would even draft the initial emails and we'd make sure that they're authentic to what the hiring manager would actually want to say and check it with the hiring manager. We would actually do the writing and we had a big team of manual writers. And so the idea was that over time, we could automate some of this writing and still have really high quality outreach as machine learning got better and better. Um, and so that that would also kind of play a role as well. Well, the emergence of GPT-3 exactly. have uh, predicted that <laughs> I think uh, we were completely right. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Going back into more of that central problem of the matching between the candidates and the roles, most of the way that role, you said you worked with the hiring managers to get a the role perfectly encoded. What was the process like for that? <laughs> we did a lot of work there and iterated on this a ton. Because the because companies are willing to pay quite a bit to find the right people, we can afford to have to like actually have a conversation with the hiring manager, sometimes multiple conversations with multiple people, just because if you're going to make $20,000 from a role, one conversation not really impacting your profits. So it's for us, it was much better to do a really high quality job of this. So we would actually have someone talk to the hiring manager for an hour and go through a bunch of example profiles and really dig into what are the attributes that this person cares about and how do those attributes trade off against each other in this hiring manager's head. So it might be that like, oh, okay, this particular person really cares about years of experience. Like they just need to have that many years. And if they don't, that's, that's not going to work. Whereas another hiring manager might be like, I don't care how many years they have. I just care that they can do X. So those are, you know, they're kind of similar things, but they're not exactly the same thing. So we built this like huge ontology of different attributes, very specific attributes and ways of thinking about candidates. And then we would, the person who did the interview would map from what the hiring manager is saying into our ontology, where we have models for each of these different attributes so that we can then, you know, quickly say, okay, out of everyone in the world, who has the attributes that this hiring manager is looking for? Interesting. And I can imagine that you would, of course, it's very complex and a very complex ontology and you have correlations between all these different attributes. Like you say, it's the experience in something versus a certain level in something is not the same, but probably usually going to be highly correlated. What would it look like when you were creating a, so if you have maybe a like representations of the specific parts of that ontology that you have that represent a role, what would the matching process look like once you have a set of candidates? I'm thinking of it as a learning to rank problem, but was it framed like that or? No, it was actually different. Learning to rank if you were thinking about ranking the entire world. But what we would try and do is pick the maybe three to six most important attributes to the hiring manager and see how they trade off against each other. What is that decision surface? Let's say there's just two attributes, like how much does this person know about biology and how many years of programming experience do they have? It's a really simple role. They just want, but these two things trade off against each other, right? So if they know lots about biology, maybe you'll take someone a little less experience. If they know almost nothing, you maybe you'll take someone a little more experience. And so there's this sort of surface, this trade-off surface between these two. So we would figure, we would just explicitly create that trade-off surface and tune it with machine learning 
But that way we could ask out of everyone in the world, who is on the accept side of this surface? And then flipping that, okay, now we have a list of people that the hiring manager would be interested in. Let's ranking those by, okay, which of these people would be most interested in talking to the hiring manager? And just saying like, all right, let's reach out to them in that order, basically. Oh, okay. I see. So the machine learning part of it is more in terms of the getting the maybe candidates profiles into those attributes and getting the role in getting the ontology set up rather than the direct matching part would be the machine learning part. Okay. I see. Interesting. And you had quite a bit of traction going into going into the past year. What can you talk about some of that and then maybe go into why you have now decided to pivot? Yeah. Yeah. Hiring managers love this, as you can imagine. It, I don't think most engineering managers love sourcing on LinkedIn and sending a bunch of emails and doing all the screens. And it's, it's a lot of work. So they loved outsourcing to this. And that's where we started. And we used that initial traction, get some more customers. I eventually went through YC. I think we raised at one of the highest valuations ever coming out of YC. A pro tip for other people doing YC, do it late. <laughs> do it when you already have an idea. Because then investors at the end are like, oh, wow, you guys grew so much. Yeah, because we already had a product and a team and everything. Everyone else had to come up with it during YC, right? So I think it's just do a little bit later than you normally would. It worked out pretty well for us. Then we got some more customers, um, bigger customers, and grew more and raised our Series A. And it, yeah, it worked. I think at some point we had millions of dollars in revenue, but it didn't feel like, especially as it got bigger and we started working with bigger companies and bigger recruiting departments, it lost that like personal touch that we really enjoyed from the beginning. Like the people that we worked with initially, the hiring managers, they're willing to build like really long-term relationships with the candidates. And so the outreach coming from them was very authentic and they were happy to spend a long time and a lot of effort on it. Whereas at a much bigger company, like the sourcer has just been there for a little while. They don't really know anything about it. They just have some numbers to hit. It's like very impersonal and it leads to all these dynamics that you see in the market for a lot of spammy emails and that kind of stuff. We didn't really want to be a part of that. It's possible like we can make our product better and help educate them and do stuff like we could make this, make this into a business. But also around this time, we sort of realized like it wasn't going to be the next Google. Like this is not going to be the biggest thing ever. And it's not... Another thing we realized is that the recruiting market itself is just not very good. There's like a lot of problems with the recruiting market. I don't know. That's probably not quite as interesting for everyone listening, so I won't go super far into that. But there, there are lots of it's like very transactional in some cases. There's like all sorts of principal agent problems. And who you have the sourcer, which has different incentives than the recruiter, who has different incentives than the hiring manager, who has different incentives than the than the, than the engineer, right? So it's this big mess to try and actually get all that stuff to actually work. And then usually what happens is the companies that really need recruiting help the most, like ones who are happy to pay the most, and why do you think they need recruiting help? Because no one wants to work there. Okay, so you have this like difficult uh, trade-off on the business side. We made it work technically, and it was a pretty good product, but it just didn't feel like it was going to be the biggest thing ever. And I think one, actually one last thing is that I think we were really wrong about our initial thesis. So our initial thesis was that we were going to automate all this work that recruiters do. And actually, we built something that could do that. But that turned out not to be a very good product. I think one important thing is that machine learning is not really about automation. I think it's much more about augmenting people and the tasks that they're actually doing and really meeting people like where they are and considering the human side of the equation. And so that's something that's stuck with us now in the way that we're thinking about our current work. It's really ML and AI should really be viewed from the lens of how are they serving human values and how are they helping people do the things that they want to do. So I think that was actually a big part. Our initial thesis was wrong. Interesting. Yeah, I think a lot of people are working in the industry are starting to move a lot more towards that as 
uh, full scale, like complete automation. Someone in a previous podcast episode used the example of Elon Musk trying to fully automate the Tesla factory. And there's some things that you are simply just not going to be able to do like that. It's that last mile problem equivalent of AI, whereas humans are just better at uh, doing some of those things. And it's much easier for you, easier and more impactful to have models to augment what you say instead of doing the full automation. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. And we actually heard the same thing. One of our employees previously worked at Tesla and we were talking about that kind of full factory automation. And yeah, it felt like there was a very similar lesson there as well. So for our pivot, thankfully, A, our investors are great and very supportive. And B, the dynamics of venture capital are such that they really want you to go big as well. If you just make a like, okay business and you sell it for $50 million or whatever, that's great for you as the entrepreneur, but it's not great for them. Like it does not help their fund. And they're pretty okay with us taking a step back and thinking, what do we really care about? What do we really want to work on? What's actually going to be a really big business? And since we realized this early enough, we had lots of money left. And we're able to take some time to really step back and think in like really long timelines. We had to reduce our team. Obviously, there were a lot of people that it didn't really fit going from a recruiting company to unsupervised learning. But so that, that was pretty painful because we, we had a great team that we built up over time. But we kept as many people as we could in, in that fit and, and made sense in this and took a step back and explored. And really, we're thinking about what I mean, the thing we kept coming back to is like these more fundamental questions about intelligence. And we saw like... Some of these breakthroughs that have been happening, like GPT-3, and uh, there's just been so much uh, really interesting work over the past few years. And it felt like more and more really powerful AI is not 100 years away. Uh, It could be a lot closer, especially depending on how you're going to define more general and more powerful intelligence and what problems you're solving. And this is something we've been thinking about for actually many years at this point. So we even considered pivoting Sorceress to more of a like AI lab or unsupervised learning type of stuff you know, years ago, even when we raised our um, seed after YC, we considered doing that. But at that time, we didn't have, we had a bunch of questions that we didn't feel like we had great answers for. But this time when we came back to it, we realized like, oh, we actually have answered a lot of these questions. Like, how can this be a business or how can we really make meaningful progress on this? And we had a lot more answers. And so we had a lot more confidence going in this direction. Mm -hmm. And I'd love to dig into some of those things that you were able to find along the way. And so let's start with the being an independent research lab in general is, of course, a business model that a lot of people have tried to do. And usually it ends up with just being aqua hired in almost every single case. How do you how how do you plan on being able to, like you say, you're seeking to be the next Google to give that uh, large venture return? What's what's you're thinking about the future for that? Yeah, the future is always uncertain. I think. One of our theses, though, is that this stuff is not going to get any less interesting or powerful or exciting over the next few years. I think, you know, would I want to be running a research lab three years from now? Definitely. (laughs) There's no way that people are going to be three years from now. Oh, AI, it was like Bitcoin and it just like went up and then no one uses Bitcoin anymore. It's not, I don't know, I think actually people do use Bitcoin now, but maybe that's not a good example. I should pick something that actually doesn't get used. It's, I don't think it's the kind of thing where, oh yeah, AI is going to be less important. I think it's actually going to get just dramatically more important and more powerful over that time. And being in this position, I think more and more people are going to start to see the sort of massive impact that this is going to have. And be willing to take a little bit of a longer term view where, you know, some of these things, they're not immediately commercializable. That's true. It's just the eventual payoff is so huge that we think it's definitely worth working on. So I think that our kind of thinking is it's really about timing. I think starting a research lab four or five years ago 
probably wasn't a good idea. It's a good thing we didn't do that. I think starting it now is, is a slightly different thing. It might, it also still might not be a good idea, right? It's possible. At some point, I think it becomes a good idea. I think at this point, that point is not too far in the future if it's not now already. Well, Hugging Face recently raised a, a pretty large round also late last year. It's definitely on the rise. Yeah. Yeah. Where you have in the description of at least the last one I saw, I know that you just changed the name as well. Don't know if you changed the description too, but it the goal here is to investigate the fundamentals of learning to create more general intelligence. Given what you've said before about the future of a lot of this technology not being full automation, what does your definition of general, more general intelligence in this case look like? Mm -hmm. That's a good question. I mean, it's something that we think about a lot, actually, still. And I don't have a great, like, pithy answer to it, unfortunately. If we did, actually, I think we might have, you know, come a lot closer to solving the problem. But I think what we really mean by, like, the definition of general is, is something that's capable of solving a more broad range of tasks without having an ML engineer come in and do a bunch of fiddling for the specific task. Like we want something that's more like a human still has to be trained, but a human doesn't require another specialized human to come over and train them and retrain them on a test set and a validation set and like do all this work, a hyperparameter optimization. Like it's a lot of work as a machine learning engineer. So we want, it's almost like what we want are like really super powered tools for machine learning engineers that eventually become so good that you don't have to, you're not, you're no longer a machine learning engineer. You're just a regular person. So, you know, it might not look exactly like a human or a robot running around or whatever. That's not really our goal. What we want are like more robust, more natural learners. And I think a lot of what we consider as intelligence it does come from this, the nature of the types of problems that we as humans are solving. So by general intelligence, we don't necessarily mean like some godlike thing that's going to solve all the problems ever. I mean, are like, there's something powerful and magical about what people do and that people can become amazing pianists or they can become amazing accountants or they can become amazing parents. And like, how is it that the same or like the same organ basically is capable of so much of solving so many diverse and varied tasks? I think that's really what we mean by general intelligence is like for the set of like human relevant, economically important tasks, how do we get something that can learn those in a much more you know, robust, scalable way? There's a big debate in artificial intelligence in general of the two sides, if you will, of deep learning versus more symbolic, classical AGI methods. And judging by some of the work that I've seen so far, I can guess what side of this uh, you're on, but maybe to give a, could you have a more nuanced view of where you think that the, uh, your current thinking on this debate lands? Yeah, actually, I, I think that's an interesting question for me, especially because for a long time, I was, I was a little bit skeptical of neural networks, actually, because I did my machine learning research in school back before neural networks were cool. Like, we did. We used support vector machines. We didn't use neural networks. Nobody used neural networks. Those were lame. They didn't work at all, actually. And yeah, this is back in like 2008 or whatever. And I was, I, and I worked on a lot of machine learning stuff since then. And it was very much the old school machine learning way of thinking about get the features right and like all this kind of stuff. And so I was pretty skeptical of, of neural networks for a long time. But I definitely came around. And they have something pretty powerful and pretty magical and pretty different from the classic machine learning algorithms. Um, and I, I think it's pretty interesting in that we have. Like they're very powerful and very capable of solving a huge range of problems and with a lot more robustness than you would expect from the kind of classical perspective of machine learning. I think in terms of a very symbolic approach, I've never been a super huge fan of that. I'm on the like almost opposite extreme end of the spectrum where there's a lot of people that say, oh, intelligence and language are very related. I actually think that other primates or dolphins are actually extremely intelligent. And if you look like biologically, 
our brain is almost identical to that of many primates, like almost a one-to-one -one mapping in, in many cases. And even the parts that are different are very similar. And so I, I think a, and their language abilities are much, much more limited. And their ability to do symbolic reasoning is very limited. So I think the interesting thing for me about intelligence is actually 99% there in the monkey brain, in a primate brain. It's not the like symbolic part. And I think neural networks are actually really cool in that they you know, can approximate huge swaths of of the like neocortex and get very good correlations with whole clusters of neurons and like really help us you know understand a lot of the neuroscience as well there's a lot of like back and forth between neuroscience and neural networks and machine learning so i'm much more on the neural network side of things yeah and then also speaking of the biological inspirations for some of these things i just seen a paper that came out of the using the 300 neuron worm that uh, we all that science knows a lot about has completely mapped being able to take some of the modules from that and creates an MNIST solver that was actually far more efficient than uh, previous ones. So yeah, the work in this field is just really interesting in general. Where do you think that the your the blog post that you had sent me of on Bootstrap Your Own Latent was a all about self-supervised learning, which was According to Yan LeCun, he said that it is the next revolution in AI and the way towards this artificial general intelligence. And is that really where you think that the current most promising ideas all are? I think it's a pretty important promising thing. I think one, one analogy that he, I think he also made that I really liked was like machine learning is like a cake. The, the core, like the cake part of the cake is unsupervised learning. Like the frosting is supervised learning, and the cherry on top is reinforcement learning. So you, it's, not very, it's not a very good cake if it has no, no cherry and no frosting. It's also not a very good cake if it's got no cake. So I think, yeah, self-supervised learning, it's a very important part of this, of this question. And it's actually one of the reasons that you felt like this was one of those unanswered questions before that now had a much better answer. It was like, how the heck would you ever learn something like this? Like before, how would you learn anything like the brain was such a difficult question. We really just had supervised methods. Are you going to go make like a big supervised training set for all these different things that people can do? That's ex extremely expensive, extremely complicated. So much bias will get in there. But these self-supervised things allow us to learn patterns from data without really needing any human supervision at all, like just seeing what patterns exist in the natural world. And so I think that's a, a very powerful, very important part of it. Yeah. And in large part, the adoption that we've seen in self-supervised learning, the explosion of the field. I was just going through the re per, like the uh, one and a half past years of research in it, and it's unbelievable how much progress was made. I'm uh, relatively out of the loop in, in terms of a lot of these like super, pretty niche research areas, although of course it's much larger niche now. But uh, I was stunned at, at how much progress was being made. You just see this chart of, of the accuracies and parameters just going like straight up and to the right. Yeah, I think self-supervised learning I think it's the biggest sort of improvements and excitement early last year was around for image representations for things on ImageNet, et cetera. But there's been really good work on all sorts of, on applying these same ideas to all sorts of different problems. And there's, in many cases now, the self-supervised or unsupervised approaches are basically as good uh, as the supervised approaches. So not exactly, but they're they're so close that like in practice, it's just so much easier to use something that's unsupervised. Like, why wouldn't you? It's been really interesting to see. Yeah. And of course, we've seen with GPT-3, it's uh, that's one example of self-supervision and the 
unbelievably uh, unbelievable capabilities of it for few shot learning. And then more recently, again, OpenAI, they have Clip and DALI, and Clip in many cases is getting state-of-the-art in zero-shot settings which on some of these data sets, which is just absolutely unbelievable to think about. That was one of those papers where I had to like stop every few seconds, just think about the implications of what I was reading. I think I'm actually not super familiar with Clip. I think Clip is working with captions and images as the data set. Yeah. Yeah. So that's actually one of the things that is a little bit tricky. And I think people are starting to realize, which is, is it really unsupervised if you have a caption on an image, like a person wrote that caption for that image. So it's not that it's not supervised in the same sense of someone is giving a label to the algorithm, but you do have this like very strong human bias about things coming through the data set, which is just a really important thing to, to think about and be careful of. I think in the self-supervised image one, another good example is like a lot of this early work was done uh, using ImageNet, for example, or a lot of these image classification data sets. But if you look at the data in those data sets, none of those data and like none of those images are of like a picture of a blank wall or a picture of the grass or something because no one takes a picture of the wall because it's boring why would you take a picture of the wall what do you see in real life most of the time well a bunch of boring walls that's why you take pictures of things you take pictures of because they're interesting and so there's this very strong it's a very strange data set if you think about it from the perspective of what do you normally see as an agent in the world and so it's just a thing to think about this kind of data set bias that, that creeps in there. And there's all sorts of other data set bias as well, especially for image classifiers or language to, to be careful about too. Yeah, that's a really interesting point. And it's in a lot of ways, uh, the first thing that popped in my mind when you thought when you were saying that was the problems that people in self-driving have to deal with, where it's all about, it's literally only about the edge cases. It's just normal driving on the highway, driving stop signs and stoplights. It's all completely fine, solve problem. But it's when you have really strange scenarios. I, I just remember seeing some of the like early Google footage where you would just have someone like get out of the car and start doing some really weird stuff. But yeah, so it's all about the edge cases and you have definitely, like you say, data set and sampling bias. Although in that case, it's close to the opposite problem. Oh, what do you mean? Oh, you have where the data that they have is mostly boring stuff, but they only care about the, but they only care about a certain small portion of that. And they're trying to pick out the interesting things from it instead of only having the interesting. I think I think that's the normal. I think that's really the normal setting. That's what I'm trying to say. It's like the, the normal setting, the natural setting is almost everything is boring, except this extremely long tail of things that are interesting. That's actually, yeah, like a baby, right? Most of the time sees inside of the house. This is so boring. Can you go to the zoo or something? It's, like, it's very rare that you see things that are interesting. That's why you pay attention to them. It's a very, actually, core important part of intelligence, I think. Mm -hmm. And like you say, the it's a it is a big problem because the algorithms that we've seen they don't have that full exposure to the breadth of the real world. And so I've seen that you have a specialized research interest in using simulated environments. So what is some of the work that you have done or work that you plan to do regarding? incorporating more of it to perhaps get more towards this uh, broader set of inputs for the model. Yeah. yeah, I think one of, so going back to my background, when I started in video games, it all comes full circle. I think we have really amazing renderers and simulators nowadays. Like it's pretty amazing. You can look at photos from these things and they're basically realistic looking like the lighting, the shadows, everything is realistic. Now, do you need that sort of level of realism to be able to learn with the machine learning algorithm? Maybe not. 
But maybe in some cases that stuff is important, right? Sometimes the very small details can be very important. And so I think one of the cool things about a simulated environment is that it allows you to tune these knobs um, and turn up and down the level of detail so that you can ask, okay, on this really simple data set, things work, but as we make it more and more complex, like how well does it work? So I think that's definitely a thing that we'll invest a lot more in the future. And I think I'm, I'm very excited about like, sim to real and transfer learning, all, all this kind of stuff, like domain randomization and generalization and out of domain transfer, all this kind of stuff. But there's the, the simulator, I think the simulated approach gives you a nice way of asking those questions, asking the right questions and playing around with the data in a way that's much, much harder if you have a fixed video data set or something. You don't want to have to go out and recollect this whole video data set. It's so much work. But if you just have the simulator, you just tweak a few things and regenerate stuff, it enables you to ask a lot more interesting questions, I think. If you're thinking about the roadmap from here we are to a to your vision of that more generally intelligent machine learning model or collection of models, not as, don't necessarily have to constrain it to just one, but what do you think is the immediate first step that is most promising to you and that you're trying to take with generally intelligent? Yeah, I think for the very first step, we're much more interested in solving like very simple problems, like making very simple baselines, solving very simple problems. And really, instead of trying to make something that's like really showy and huge and everything, like instead being able to very deeply understand how exactly do these things work? Like where exactly do they fail as we make the, as we make the environment slightly more complicated? Where does an autoencoder fail? Or where does an RSSM or Planet or Dreamer, like where do these things break down? And purposely breaking them and fixing them uh, and building on it like that. So I think our initial focus is very much on these just simple prediction tasks. Can we learn the rules of physics, right? Can we learn that like when you drop a ball, it falls and then hits the ground and then it stops? Like that's a very simple thing for us as people. And even animals understand that if you drop the ball, the animal can catch it. Okay, great. Right? Like dogs are perfectly good at playing fetch. Uh, they don't get confused and think the ball is going to stay in the air. Whereas many machine learning algorithms, you know, don't don't have that same level of robustness. And so I think for us, it's like, how do we learn these kind of natural patterns? And in a way, how do we learn these like very robustly and from data that's not as hand curated, et cetera? Those are the initial problems that we're focused on is learning this like very basic information about the world in a very robust way. And speaking of some of the of breaking some of these models and figuring out where they go wrong, the most pub the public post that you have right now is about where DeepMind's paper, Bootstrap Your Own Latent, kind of goes wrong. So can you explain your interest in that originally and then where that uh, interest took you? Yeah. Yeah. So I think initially this was part of our exploration of the most recent self-supervised learning stuff, just re-implementing it ourselves, just checking out and seeing how it works, like getting a feel for it. And actually the, the way this blog post came about is funny. One of our researchers implemented Bile, and that, that's how it's pronounced. Like B-Y-L-L is, is Bile. Bring your own lane. Yeah. I always thought it was Biol, but that's a funny way to say it. So apparently it's Bile. <laughs> so yeah, he, he implemented Bile and uh, it didn't work at all. And he's like, wow, this is like, what? How does this not work? How did I make it so bad that it's completely random? And he realized eventually the only thing he left out uh, was the batch norm. And he put that in and then it worked perfectly. Like, Wait a second. This is pretty weird. Like the having a batch norm or not has this huge of an impact on it. And so that sort of kicked off this like month long investigation into exactly why is it that batch norm is causing or is like making such a huge difference for us. Now, it, to be clear here, there's two things actually. He was using SGD 
for the optimizer instead of Lars. And so that was there's two differences. If you use Lars, it will still work, even if you don't use BatchNorm. It I don't think it works quite as well, but it's like a little bit fiddly, especially with the, some of the hyperparameters that won't necessarily converge. But SGD, I don't know, we just SGD better anyway. So we were using SGD. He did not expect either of these things to have a huge impact on it. It has this huge impact on it. And so you know we dug into it and tried to figure out why exactly does this have such a big impact? And I think that also is what we're doing now. I think as I was saying before, it's about deeply understanding how these things work. I'd much rather spend a month digging into exactly what is going on with, with this particular network than just chalk it up to, to chance and, and let it go. So we just dug in, ran lots of experiments and figured out a bunch of different things. One hypothesis that we had was like, oh, okay, maybe this batch norm is introducing a, a similar effect as some of these other kind of competitors to Bile, like Simclear and Moco, where they use what's called contrastive learning. Bile is also technically that, depending on how you think about it. But contrastive learning, the idea is you take two different images and you transform each of them. And then you ask, oh, okay, were these images from, were these images the same or not? And so if you had an image and you took two different transforms and they were the same, okay, that's a positive example. If you have two different Im images and you took transforms, uh, that's a negative example. So this ends up clustering like things together. So you get pictures of dogs being clustered together and pictures of cats being clustered together in your dog-cat classifier, for example. Bile is different and then it doesn't need to have these positive and negative examples. You don't need to say, oh, here's two different images to make the negative examples. It just always works with only positive examples. So that was that's pretty interesting. And that's actually why we were, and part of the reason we were looking into it is this is really interesting from like a you know biological plausibility perspective or a you know practical perspective. It's hard in the real world to have to, to even know what is a negative example, right? If you're looking outside, what's a negative example? In a data set, it's easier because you know that I have the rest of the data set. And so that's you know part of what we we're looking at. And we thought maybe this bath norm is implicitly comparing the image that you're the one image that you're working with the other images in the batch. So one of the claims from Vile was like, oh no, it's not comparing to any of the other things. And it really it's like getting some statistics from that, but it's not exactly the same. There's been a lot of follow-up work now on this actually. Um, I think our hypothesis there of like, oh, it is introducing contrastive learning. It's not exactly. So I really mean to write a follow-up post to clarify this. The bio authors had a good paper at a workshop at NeurIPS a month or two ago. Uh, and there was another guy who had a good paper there as well. Uh, they were both saying opposite things. The bio people were saying, oh no, it works even without batch norm. And this guy was saying, oh yeah, like here's mathematically why this is doing the same thing as batch norm. And so I think if people who are interested, I'd recommend go to our blog, subscribe. I'll have a new post there soon that links to all this and some other additional experiments that we ran. And it's a little more detailed and complicated than our initial post, maybe. I think it's a, still an active area of, of research interest, though, for sure. I think that paper from the workshop will probably be at ICA. Interesting. Yeah, I'd read the I had read their response to essentially your blog post where they said that, oh, yeah, this also works with also with it was group norm, right? They were using where you. Yeah, I, it's a little complicated. A, they switched from SGD to Lars. Uh, and B, they all, it's funny, if you look in their paper, Bile works even without batch norm, and you read through it, the way that they make it work without batch norm is they run one pass of batch norm to get the initialization. Okay, sure. Oh, interesting. Yeah, so it does work, though. That is, it is legitimate. Like, if you do change the initialization, it will work. And that was our point also, is it's about preventing this collapse behavior. And so if you change the initialization, you can prevent that. But it's just much more robust with batch norm. I think they would agree with that. So that's why we use batch norm. <laughs> yeah, and just to explain the collapse a little bit, if I, if I understand the problem with the reason that you have these negative examples is to ensure that your network doesn't just cut off all of its input and then just output something constant. And then when you're minimizing the distance, it's just outputting a perfect value. 
Yeah, so the, the way that the file paper basically works is it, instead of having these positive and negative examples, they're trying to predict like a second transform at the end of this single positive example. But the problem is, it, like, if that function does learn the identity function, if that part of your network learns the identity function, then you're in trouble because it uh, makes itself independent from the whole rest of the network, which is what you were trying to learn. And so if you get unlucky in your optimization and you end up learning that identity function, then you're in trouble. So if you initialize it correctly, you'll avoid that. Or if you use BatchForm, you'll avoid that. Or if you use Lars, you'll avoid that. It's all about avoiding that part of the network learning the identity function. Yeah, and uh, in the bio paper, there was also a some interesting things that uh, they had done that it's, like you said, it's in general, deep learning is a very empirical field and it's hard to tell what's going on. And that's why you have to do these experiments where you try and break things. But I don't know, specifically with the predictor Q, they're using a, like having an explicit function mapping from their output instead of having to, or between the two different sides of the network, instead of just having that distance minimization with uh, a cosine loss. And it's not, is it clear to you why that helps in any case? Like, yeah. It's not, ex yeah, I can't describe it very easily. I think that the best answer to that is uh, let me put all this together in the, in our follow-up blog post with some other additional sort of interesting experiments also. I think one of the things we found was that the momentum encoder, we could get rid of that whole bit of complexity and it still worked fine. It's interesting. And there were some other uh, interesting results from it as well. I think it's there's, if people are looking for research uh, topics, there are plenty of unanswered questions here. <laughs> Yeah, and for the momentum one specifically, the I know that was introduced, of course, in the Moco paper, and they they had stated that they added that momentum factor because it stabilized the training in general and just made it uh, easier to train. And but it's interesting if you look at other parts of the field. I was recently at, at my work having to do using a similar bi-encoder like architecture, and hadn't heard of any of Moco at all, and so just trained it so that they were Siamese networks in parallel, and it worked completely fine. Yeah. Yeah, I think the so I think it works fine with the I think the contrastive learning stuff, the like Moco, Sinclair, very robust. There's actually I I think there's another paper doing the Siamese network approach that even simplifies above and beyond Sinclair. Like just taking out I think you know, taking out the momentum encoder, taking out some other piece and just being like, Oh look, you can make this really simple and it still works. It doesn't work quite as well. It might have been called SimSiam. Siam something? I don't remember exactly. I thought that was a cool that was cool work to show you can simplify it even further. But I think the thing that's different with Biol is that once you remove this kind of contrastive part, the negative and positive examples, then it does become a little more, just a little bit more fiddly. And so you have to be a little more careful about it. So the momentum encoder probably is helping a little bit in Biol, probably for stabilization too. Interesting. And so you said something interesting before about how you don't have negative examples out in your quote-unquote real-world data set as you go around. So how do you think about that collection of data in general as it relates to AI? We were talking about before about simulated environments, about how it's interacting with its environment in general. And if you are, of course, in babies, in some cases, they'll learn from sometimes negative examples where it's like, oh, that's not a cow or something if they're pointing to a dog. But uh, I guess how... Like, what are your thoughts in general on this, on how agents will learn as they go through the environment and possibly how this connects to uh, self-supervised learning and bio specifically? It's not that there's no negative examples, right? As you said, if 
if, if the baby says, oh, look, it's a cat, and his parents, no, oh, that's a dog. Oh, okay, great. Like, it, it will, the baby will eventually learn, oh, no, I guess I was wrong. The number of negative examples in, I think, even a single batch for Moco was like 65,000. I don't know if someone has told me that I was wrong 65,000 times in my life. That's just one batch. Just the amount of feedback that we get of that form is just so much smaller in magnitude than what these networks are getting. And so I think that kind of stuff falls more in the reinforcement learning, which is really important. It's also a very important component of learning. But I think, yeah, so that, that's how I think about the, as agents or people interact. This, they get a lot smaller amount of data from those interactions, but that, that information is super, super important. And that's what all of RL is about. It's like, how do we extract as much power, as much learning power as possible from this really tiny number of examples? Um, and it's a really hard problem. As you can see, like, a lot of the RL stuff is like, oh, it worked this time. <laughs> Not this time, though. <laughs> yeah, exactly. They always have to average out, uh, and you always have the error bounds on their charts. So <laughs> yeah. You know how many samples they had before they, yeah. before they got one to work. Yeah. Where do you, what are you interested in now, or where is your lab exploring specifically? Like you, of course, you're digging more into some of this self-supervised with, without Papa's examples, with mm -hmm. Bile, more research there. Mm -hmm. But are there other particular things that have come out recently, or maybe even original work that you're doing that, that you think is leading you towards this goal? Yeah, there were, there were a ton of really interesting works from NeurIPS this year, actually. Yeah, we pretty much all went there and went to a bunch of sessions and talked to a bunch of people. It was great. I've enjoyed it being uh, remote, actually, this year. It was fun also last year when it was not remote. But uh, yeah, I think in terms of the questions that we're asking now or thinking about, that is going to change pretty quickly because research, that's just the nature of research, is much more open-ended. It's not like a regular engineering kind of roadmap, you know, where like we know exactly what we'll be doing two or three or four months from now. But I think for high-level things that we're thinking about, is, as I said, really deeply understanding the fundamentals, focusing on simple problems, simple architectures. And really, I think the focus is on the computational problems that the brain is designed to solve. So the kinds of stuff that's really interesting to us is, do you remember that an object is behind a wall if it moves behind there? So that's related to scene reconstruction or scene understanding problems is one way of thinking about it. There's a lot of other stuff. There's a lot of interesting work in that field, though, which I feel like is not biologically plausible. Do, can, you know, if you picture a bicycle right now, how detailed is it? Probably not, if you're like most people, probably not very, you know, detailed. And these networks can generate extremely detailed reconstructions. So they are in a sense like much more powerful than humans. So for us, the more interesting problems are the ones that are related to like, what is the human brain trying to solve? The human brain is just trying to be able to tell, is that a bicycle or not? Yeah, okay, it's got some of the, sh the right shapes and stuff. All right, cool, I'm done here. It doesn't need to remember at pixel level how it reconstructs everything. Uh, and so I think for us, we're much more interested in trying to figure out the right uh, questions to ask than the solutions to those questions. It's, you know, what, so this question is really what we're asking all the time. Is like, what are the right questions for us to be asking? Should we be working on predicting that the ball was behind that thing or the laws of gravity or which really small, easy tasks should we be working on next and adding to our system as we make it more and more, more and more powerful. How do you balance the coming up with more research questions and, and that high, broad level thinking of uh, divergence, if you will, and then with the convergent part of actually getting some sort of research answer and write, creating that, like that output, whether it be a paper or a blog post? Well, one of the things that we're fortunate about so far is that we don't have as much pressure to make papers or blog posts. We will. We do it because we like to. It's a lot easier to make a blog post, I think, than a paper as well. And so for us, it's 
we're much more interested in the understanding part than in the like getting a new highest score on the state of the art problem. And so I think that's actually what enables us to just ask lots of new questions. Like right now, if you try to ask a new question in academia or in a conference, it's a crapshoot. Are the reviewers going to think this is an interesting question or not? And so if you're asking lots of new questions, you're just, it's, it's, you're like making it a little bit harder for yourself as a researcher. And it's already hard as a researcher. So I think that's part of what keeps people away from doing this. And I think it's actually one of the opportunities for us is that we're a little more free to explore this part that is a little more underexplored. We want to stay away from anything that's how do we get a much better performance number on this, this data set that other people already are thinking about. We just want to be thinking about what are new data sets? What are new problems? What are new ways of thinking about this? that we can apply existing techniques to and just see how well they do. And I think the thing is, there's so much powerful, there's so many powerful techniques and networks and things out there that usually answering the question is not the hard part. Like usually we apply anything simple. You take some open source thing and somebody else, oh, great, it worked, look at that. And now we're answering more and more questions and getting a deeper and deeper understanding of it. Maybe to make it a little bit more concrete, when you're thinking of a problem like, how can we get a model to say, I don't know, solve something similar to what our, our brain is doing, make it map a little bit closer, or maybe how can we have it understand gravity or something like that? How would you, and maybe using a, a recent real example that you, of a research project that you, you did, what do you, where do you take that question? How do you formulate a data set? And what do you, what's your first step to uh, do that? For the gravity one, that's a good one. That's one that we're thinking about right now, actually. The the first step is thinking about how do we want to know, how do we want to like answer this question of have we learned about gravity? So you could imagine just making a data set of things that just fall down. Okay, did you learn about gravity? What was this data set like? Did you know how many examples are there? How normal is it that things fall down? Should you have things that are like rolling and then falling off the edge of a table? Should you just have things that are falling? Should you have things that are just sitting still? What, how do you, I think for us, the answer is like, okay, we want to do a lot and make this as robust as possible and really explore the whole space of possible, like even the space of data sets, really. If you, it's a lot easier to learn gravity if every example is tailored for, this is how you learn about gravity. It's a lot harder to learn gravity if we only see gravity happen every once in a while. Like babies don't see lots of things falling all the time. And so one of the cool things about the simulator is that it allows us to adjust, like how frequently are these interesting events happening in the data set? And so we can make it, we can start out a very simple network where this is just happening all the time. Like it's just designed, this data set is like perfect for you learning gravity and then back it off and make it more complicated. Okay, most of the data sets not about that. Some things happen to fall some of the time. Can you still learn this? And then how easy, like how well have you learned this? If we ask about, you know, something where it's falling just a really short distance or something where it's like rolling down a hill instead of falling. Okay. Or it's just like nudge just a little bit. Okay. Can you, are those predictions correct? So the way we can answer this question is there's kind of two ways. One, you could ask, you know, is the network surprised when something happens? Is the loss function really high? Does it not do a good job of predicting the future on this thing that you expected as a human to, to be surprising? You can design something where like a ball falls up and then ask, is that surprising to your network? Hopefully it is if it learned about gravity. Another thing you can do is probe the network and ask, okay, if we build another network on top of this one, is it really easy for us to predict the ground truth labels from the simulator, like the position and velocity and acceleration of the ball? If it is really easy, well, apparently we learned about gravity. It's really hard. Oh, I guess we didn't learn about it. So we have enough tools to answer, did we learn this information or not? And it's really about iterating the data set, trying out different networks, 
um, and tuning them and like really exploring the whole space of possibilities for learning like this particular concept. And then once you have, let's say that you are able to establish that, okay, we have a network that is able to learn gravity through whatever deep learning magic that uh, you've been able to concoct. But I think it turns out it turns out to be pretty simple. You can use all sorts of simple baselines. To, the magical thing is that neural networks, a lot of them work really well on a lot of these problems. Well, so once you have that maybe same simple model, mm-hmm. how, are you thinking about, for your next step, are you thinking about putting that into a, having it learn multiple concepts at once, say, or having it learn under a more challenging setting? Like, where do you go from there? Yeah, exactly. It's about... How do you learn not just gravity, but also other laws of physics and also other patterns of uh, things that happen? Like, how do you learn about occlusions or object permanence or all, like, how do you, for each one of these things, it's not really a hard problem on its own. Like, gravity is not really that hard to learn on its own. The really challenging thing is like, how do you learn that and all these other kind of regularities of the real world together in one system in a way that's not, you don't want to be hard coding anything about each of these things. But that's really the question is like, how do you extend it and make it more general? So I know that there's a perspective that having those implicit biases in general might not be such such a bad thing because I know there's a lot of evolutionary biologists that think that it's possible that we, because we obviously live in this environment, grew up in this environment as a species, that actually a lot of what our brains is, our brain is doing is making it extremely easy to learn those concepts because it has had those implicit biases and there's some interesting pretty interesting research on this but uh, what are your general thoughts on on not wanting to put those into the model yeah i actually think that's a really good point and something we think about a lot i think there's a balance between the two of those we were just talking last night actually about i was actually just surprised by some new data that someone gave me yesterday about prior for languages apparently in like communities of people where adults and children come together from different backgrounds and they don't know each other's language at all, the adults will speak this kind of language where they they can like say words that eventually the other person will understand, but it's like always broken. It's never really a very fluent language. It doesn't have consistent syntax, et cetera. They just find something that works. Whereas the kids raised in this environment will end up inventing a like syntactically correct, not inventing, but like developing or understanding or learning a syntactically correct version of this language that the adults do not. And I think it's partly because you probably have this really strong prior for learning languages of this particular syntactic form. There are language, there are attributes that all languages share, like the rate of information transmitted. And there's a bunch of different um, attributes that they share. And it's probably because you have a very strong prior for what types of languages and what types of things can you learn. So I think those priors definitely exist. And the question for us is like, what are those priors and how strong are they? And then when there is a prior, what a prior is really is saying, okay, this network is predisposed or optimized to learn this particular pattern. And actually, a lot of the networks that we have are already, they have these priors, even though we don't really think of them as priors. There's a really cool work called Deep Image Prior. If people want to look about basically saying like the structure of our image networks is like perfectly suited to these image tasks. It's not necessarily that deep learning networks are like so magically generally good. It's that this particular architecture is like really good for image problems because it's just perfectly fit to it. Similarly for RNNs, there was a really cool blog post from I think last year about showing that like RNNs are like actually the optimal solution for recursive fixed stack size languages, which is basically what human languages are in practice. 
And so it's, oh, that's pretty interesting. Oh, okay. That's why they work so well on language things then. So I think these priors really do exist in our networks. And for us, the question is like, where, what are the priors and where are they relevant? And how do we like find networks that have the right priors? Yeah, that's such an interesting answer about needing to be explicit about what the implicit biases are in uh, that you're putting into a lot of this research. And it's it's very cool that you're drawing inspiration for these research ideas. You're, you just said that you got this data from a presumably a sociological study. So as a research group, how do you, what are your methods of collaboration? How are you thinking about where you're sourcing ideas from? Mm-hmm. That's actually something that we think about pretty actively and, and optimize for. One of the I think strategically, one of the things that we want to do is make a culture that's actually the absolute best for research, where people are really like safe and inspired and able to really pursue their own ideas, no matter how crazy they are or, or contrarian for you know the rest of the field. So we want to make like just the absolute best research environment. And we think a lot about how do we collaborate, how do we share information with each other, et cetera. We use a bunch of different internal tools. We have Notion and Rome. We have our own stuff built on top of that. We obviously have our Slack channel. We have, you know, it's a uh, pretty interesting sort of internal habits and culture around stand up and asking questions and digging into things and just are constantly trying to refine and improve how we do that. It's very interesting that you go to the to some of these tools as a very important part of the culture itself. So maybe to dig in, into some of these, I'm a huge fan of Notion and Rome. We have a lot of big fans on our team. And it's really cool that, uh, and it makes perfect sense that a research organization as a whole would have maybe a shared Rome graph. So how have you been finding that in general? And do you think that it's, yeah, like, what are your thoughts on it in general? Yeah, it's not, I would say that our work and exploration here is still very early. I think we're very excited about the potential of it. And we're always interested in stuff like this. And this is the kind of stuff where like you try a lot of things, some things stick and are great and a lot of things don't. But yeah, sorry, what was your question again? how you're thinking about just tools in adopting tools. Actually, I think for us, the tools are really important and we're happy to build on top of existing things and cobble things together and make scripts and everything like that. We do have something on top of Rome that will like import papers from our Mendeley, for example, or like sync comments back and forth. And it's some janky script that someone wrote. We have some little like database model or whatever behind it, but it's, it's a very, uh, it's very practical. It's not, it's not its own perfect thing. So I think, we love building tools, whether it's for collaboration in terms of research stuff like this, or whether it's for the infrastructure side of things as well. And now you had mentioned that uh, you're thinking very explicitly about driving that research culture as a group and making it the the best for research. For research. And of course, there's a, as you hinted at before, a lot of perhaps bad incentives in some other institute research institutions. And the question that I like a lot is, what are you optimizing for? So in this case, like what if it's not papers, if it's not, uh, I don't know, a claim, what are you optimizing for as a culture? Yeah, I think the thing, we literally have this in our all hands slide every week. The thing that we're optimizing for is deeply understanding. Like the thing we care about is understanding, both individually and collectively. We want to add new information to the world, ideally. That's why we want them to go make some blog posts and share it. But the primary thing is for us to, as a group, uh, collectively increase our understanding. So that's really what we're optimizing for. And when you're thinking about crafting that culture, what are some of the examples of things that you might have 
taken from other companies, other organizations. I don't know. The like the Netflix culture deck was very influential and things like that. What where do you draw inspiration from? Yeah. Oh man, it's come from a whole bunch of different places. My my co-founder was the chief of staff at Dropbox and helped them make their values and thought really deeply about that. We thought a lot about our values at Sorceress and worked with our team on it and are doing the same thing here as we kind of work on stuff. I think it's actually really hard for me to remember exactly where all these things came from. Yeah, they just collect over time. I think maybe a lot of them come from like books, other things we've heard other people try, just other random ideas we had or when problems happen. I think actually that's maybe one of the big things is like making the culture psychologically safe. That notion comes from Google, right? Like they looked at really effective teams. How do you do that? Okay. There's a book, Radical Candor, about you know, sort of how do you do that? Okay, great. So we've like implemented a ton of stuff from there. And that has made it easy to say, oh, okay, this doesn't feel quite right. Like, for example, our standup that we were doing didn't feel quite right. We're like, oh, okay, we're like writing standup notes and like saying stuff, but like it's kind of like an old engineering standup. This doesn't feel right for this. And so now what we do instead is just one or two people per day we just, they, we, we called it hot seat at first, but instead now we call it hot tub, where you just sit in the hot tub for a while. And basically, like we just ask them tons of questions and go very deep on all, what did you do? Why did you do this? What are you thinking of running next? Like, how does this thing work? Just everyone asking lots of questions and going very deep on the thing. And it's as a stand-up, I think people would find it nightmarish. It's like super long, but we all come out of them feeling really energized and excited because there's so you learn so much more this way and it's so much more interesting and I think so much better from like a research perspective. And so that just came from someone probably complaining about stand-up being slow and boring one day and they had space to do that because of the psychological safety thing from Google. Yeah, that's a really great example. And again, it's all about that, the balance of divergent thinking where you're, are, where you're collaboratively brainstorming as a group and it's interesting that you have someone at the very center of it that everyone is directing uh, all their questions to. Was there a specific reason instead of just to do that, instead of just uh, having, I don't know, people talk in general about what what they're researching? Yeah, I think that actually, now that you mentioned it, I think that partly was inspired by Abe, one of our other researchers. When he was doing his PhD, they had this like research group thing where one person would be in the hot seat to explain a paper every week. And so I think that notion of like hot seat, we're going really deep on this one thing came from that. And we're like, oh, we might as well do that for the thing the person is currently working on. Oh, very cool. What do you think about project management as an organization? And of course, research is very sporadic. Like you said, there's no roadmap of we're going to do this in two months and it's going to be, and it's going to be great. It's uh, it's much more, you're finding your way through a space that is completely unknown with completely realizing that it's a very hard problem. How do you manage all these things? Yeah, I actually saw a really interesting blog post that helped me synthesize some of my thoughts about this maybe yesterday or the day before about how do you measure engineering progress and like, how do you think about that? And he was saying, okay, there's kind of two ways people think about this. You can measure output, you can measure input. Neither of those are very great for sort of obvious reasons that people know about, but what he proposed instead, and I thought, and really resonated me with, what if instead you measure the blockers, measure the things that are getting in the way of your team and remove those? So it's all about enablement. And this is the thing that we had been thinking about before as well. Is like, really what we want to do is just enable people. Like the more tools, the faster you can run experiments, the like the quicker code review is just like the less stuff in your way, the better. I think that's how I think about it. If you can move as fast as you want and you never feel like, oh no, I made this mistake and my experiments don't count anymore. Or, oh no, I spent six months reproducing this thing that somebody else had already written a paper about. That's the kind of stuff we want to you know, avoid. And so I think it's all about enablement and uh, trying to find those blockers and remove those. 
Interesting. What are some of the things that you uniquely came up with as an organization or think is particularly effective for enabling those ideas to be task tested in such a rapid fashion? Mm, what level are you asking the question at? Sure. Uh, is there a particular, so we'll start at the, I guess, the more macro level of what do you think that is a piece of your culture that it uniquely enables rapid experimentation or true depth for understanding? What's something that you might uh, not be doing in and trading off to be able to go for that depth of understanding? I think one of the things is that we're very open to building a lot of good infrastructure and tooling internally. Like we would much rather take the short-term hit and not make a ton of progress this week and instead like be able to move and iterate much faster. So for example, we spent a lot of time making it so that we can very quickly regenerate our data sets and rerun experiments and track all the experiments and all that kind of stuff. And so it's like, uh, it's just now a lot easier to do that. And, and we're and like, we're just getting started. There's so much good infrastructure to be made here. And we also are pretty conscious to, you know, not reinvent everything ourselves. Like we only want to we use weights and biases very extensively, right? Like we use as many other tools as we can. We use PyTorch Lightning, we use PyTorch, we use as much other stuff as we can, but then build as much as we can on top of that to solve our own unique problems. So that like one example, we made this thing that we call AutoAbe. So it's just this optimizer where Abe was like, okay, I'm spending all this time like making or like fiddling with hyperparameters to like see if this network is good or not, running hyperparameter sweeps even. But this is silly. Like all I'm doing is the following algorithm. And so he just spent a week in writing it out. And now we have a thing that will just like hit go and it will just come back in a little while. Okay, we did this like really nice hyperparameter sweep and it's much more efficient. And then grid search and found really great parameters and pretty much anything, you just hit optimize. You don't think about it at all. And now it just comes back to you with like, okay, this is where the performance ends up. You can see the curve and be like, do I want to keep going or not? Great. So just like one last thing for you to think about. And so I think by us not having really hard deadlines as a culture, not saying, well, you must have this done by the end of the week. He was free to say, I'm going to spend a week doing this. And I know this optimizer research or whatever, or project isn't really related to what we're doing at all, but I think it'll be useful. And yeah, it turned out to be super useful. That's great. You should definitely uh, think about open sourcing. Yeah. I don't know how to have that <laughs> in my workflow. <laughs> yeah. And so your, uh, I've listened to a few of the podcast episodes that uh, you have started to put out as a company. What have been some of the highlights so far of, of doing these? Yeah. One thing that was great, actually, uh, we had one last week where at the end of the conversation, we were just chatting. We had, chat, we had talked with her for you know an hour and a half or two hours already. And she's like, oh, what are you guys doing? Blah, blah, blah. We we're talking about our approach. And asking a question like, oh, okay, that's interesting. Oh, why, why this, why that? But there was this like moment where her eyes lit up and she's like, oh, like I, I see what, oh, wow, that's really cool. Oh, wow. Can I like play with that? Can I build on top of that? Can you guys please open source that? I think that was just really fun to talk for another, you know, two hours or whatever about stuff. And so it's just really fun to get to meet people in the community and bounce our ideas off them and see that kind of excitement for these things. I think there's so many, there's so many new, exciting ideas and uh, things to build. It's just, it's really fun. Yeah, I really like the frame, how Kendrin frames the the intro for the podcast of we want to we don't want these talks between researchers to just be lost in the halls of of these research institutions. We want them 
want it to be a global colloquium to be able to have these conversations in the open and have people from probably all backgrounds be able to contribute to the to the zeitgeist. And if people want to learn more about that, learn more about uh, what you're doing at your independent research lab, where should they go? They should just go to generallyintelligent.ai and they can, we have our blog post there. They've got the, the podcast there. There's even a link to jobs if you're excited about it. <laughs> Great. And I'll definitely have those links in the description below. Is there something that you think that you wanted to talk about that we didn't get a chance to hit or something that do you think in general people don't uh, ask you about enough? Maybe one last thing is why we're doing this. I think there's two pieces. One, I am really excited to see for this next year, I think we're going to get to be a lot more open about what we're doing. It's not secrecy, it's just busyness. <laughs> but we're trying to hire uh, some people to help us make more more blog posts and more podcasts and be more open about everything. And I, we really do want to involve the research community. I think our approach probably uh, forever into the future, I, I think we're going to be, we're going to at least try to be as open as possible about the stuff that we're doing and collaborative as possible. And like ideally working with a bunch of other researchers and we don't, since we don't really care about papers that much, I'm hoping that we find some cool ideas and we can donate them to someone else to take and go the rest of the way and inspire other people to do to continue those and spread a bunch of these ideas more. So that's one piece. Uh, and another piece is why we're doing this. I think it, it it just feels like a very important thing for the future. Like machine learning, AI, it's going to be extremely important. And it's extremely important that we get it. And that we, I think one of the important things for getting it right is that we come at it from this like perspective of thinking about how does it serve people, like I mentioned before. And I think one of the reasons for our approach, even for thinking about what are the what are the computational tasks that humans solve, et cetera, is that it it seems much more likely for us to end up in a good spot if we're making intelligences that are similar to us and intelligences that we actually understand. If we take some giant model and scale it way up and it does something, what does that mean? Can I trust this thing to actually do anything that I care about? What values does it have? I mean, all these questions are so unanswerable. It's this black box. If instead we can really deeply understand this stuff and really construct a software partner to ourselves, I think, and like something that is really excited to support our values and do the things that people are excited to do and create material and emotional and intellectual abundance so that everyone can do what they're excited about. I think that's what we're excited about for the future. And that's why we're approaching things in this way. Yeah. And that reminds me of, of another topic that I had potentially wanted to ask you about, which was the in general, the AI alignment problem, it's a entirely different field of research. It's a, in some ways more philosophical than technical. But what are, you mentioned that, of course, that AI does need to be aligned. And But I think the, the key distinction between a lot of people's thinking on this is the urgency and uh, how big of a problem it is in general. So could, what are you thinking about, about that? Yeah, I think... It's simultaneously more important and less important. It's sort of strange. And what I mean by that is it's more important than like most people in the world are thinking about, sure, because I think this is going to have a huge impact on the world. But it's not, and in one sense, it's like obviously intractable or impossible to do some of the things that people might want. Can we make everyone happy forever? No, probably not. Like people have differing values. That's true. But can we make things generally much better? Yes, I think so. And the alignment problem is often framed. I think it was weird assumptions, like a lot of machine learning, one of the things that doesn't really resonate with us is like this sort of culture or idea of optimization of like, oh, like I have this metric, let's optimize this metric. I think just that even idea itself is flawed. Actually, a podcast we're doing this Friday, this week, 
is with someone who wrote a really cool paper about exactly this problem and an easy way out of it. Instead of saying, oh, here's this thing, make as many paper clips as possible or make me as much money as possible. If instead of saying something like that, you relax the constraints, you can actually get to a much better outcome. So they showed in this paper under a very small set of assumptions, um, if you pick any metric, then you'll get infinite negative utility, as in it's really bad. <laughs> so because, so it's a pretty small, it's worth checking out the paper. It's a pretty small reasonable set of assumptions because it, it basically is that saying if you have things that can't be optimized for or measured, then as you optimize for this one thing, it's like causes negative side effects. And so as you keep going and getting just a little bit more, you're like damaging everything else, which is, which is bad. And that's what people are afraid of with this alignment problem. It's like, oh, what if it goes off and does something really bad? But what they showed in the paper is there's two ways you can easily fix this. One, if you consider the negative side effects as part of the function itself, then it can go a long ways towards alleviating this problem. But two, and much more importantly, if you check back in with the person and change the function, then you're in a much better space. And so this is what you would naturally expect if you told an AI to go off and make paperclips, and then it came back to you a year, a day later and been like, okay, I made 100,000 paperclips. You're like, cool, don't make any more of those. Please go do something else now. Okay, great. You're in the perfect world now. So what you want is this human interaction because it's about what do we actually care about? And you change your mind over time. And that's an important part of the problem. And so I think taking a step back out of the optimization framework and thinking about what do we actually care about? Of course, you'd want to change your mind and change things up. Then it becomes about the rate of change. Like how fast is the world changing versus how fast can you give it feedback? So as long as that rate is reasonable, you're actually in a very good regime. That's fascinating. What is the name of that paper? It's called Consequences of Misaligned AI by Simon Zhuang and Dylan Hadfield-Menel from NeurIPS this past year. Interesting. Yeah, that thinking about the negative, fully negative utility, if you have, uh, if you're optimizing for anything, that's, huh, I'll definitely, <laughs> not quite understanding how that works at the moment, but I'll definitely have to check that out. Awesome. And uh, yeah, I think we're getting towards the end of our conversation. It's been really interesting. And so before we break to or stop the recording, I always like to ask our guests some of the same questions. And I'm actually going to add a new one that I normally, or well, it was an old one that everyone had the same answer to, but it's relevant here. So uh, I'll ask it to you. How far away do you think we are from AGI? Oh, man, that's a tough question. I've got pretty big bounds on it. I would say probabilistically, if I have to guess off the cuff. Oh, also, what do we mean by it? I think if we're taking like that, this is a very complicated question, a little uncomfortable giving a perfect answer. I think if we're, if I'm saying like, how long is it until 90% of the tasks that humans do today that are economically valuable are something that we could theoretically make a computer do for less than a million dollars of like time engineering the system, which would then do the thing. Then I think like within the next 10 or 20 years, we have maybe pretty good chance of getting there, probably like 60, 70% chance of getting there. As in like pretty in the not too distant future, we'll get to a place where a lot of the stuff we view as work is possible to do. Might not all have been done yet, but yeah. I like uh, the specificity of that answer. Do you think that the road to getting there will be asymptotic or exponential? I think there's going to be some nonlinearities along the way. Yeah, I think there's going to be uh, um, some like sudden discoveries that like, oh, wow, oh, oops, that, that made a big progress. Yeah. So I'm not sure. 
I think, so I don't think exponentials, maybe. I think lumpy. <laughs> kind of how I would. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, probably emulating uh, what we've seen in the field so far. And then for a less serious question, what do you do for fun outside of work? I actually, yeah, I, I struggled with this question. I, I used to play a lot of games. And again, like going back to computer games uh, and board games and everything. And I actually, it's funny because it's aligned with our research in that like, games are these interesting, like small little areas where you can explore and like really fully understand the dynamics of something. So I always found that kind of fascinating. But recently I found them like a bit too small. And so wanted to work on, and so I'm a little bit more fascinated by reading neuroscience and that kind of stuff. And I've been just doing a little bit more of that in my free time than, than playing games. And speaking of reading, is there maybe a good neuroscience book that you would recommend or more generally books that you often recommend? I don't have a perfect neuroscience one yet. I'm actually looking for one. If people have a great neuroscience one, feel free to email it to me. I'm, I'm always looking for better ones. I haven't found my favorite one yet. In terms of books, I think when we mentioned Radical Candor before, that's a great book. I think another book that I really is one other one that people that probably should read is uh, Why We Sleep. If you don't sleep a lot, you should read Why We Sleep. Uh, and maybe the final one I'll mention is uh, Peak, which is about uh, peak performance, like how to be uh, really good at what you do. I, I like those books a lot. Yeah, Why We Sleep is uh, definitely one of my favorites from the past few years. Give me a lot of uh, aha moments. <laughs> Next is, uh, what advice would you give to someone just entering the field? I would say expect it to take a really long time because there's a ton to learn. So as long as you have that expectation, it's going to be a lot better. But one of the really cool things about computer science is that you can understand at the electron level everything that happens from pressing a key on your keyboard to a pixel showing up on your screen. And that's just so powerful and so cool. So don't be afraid to like go down a bunch of rabbit holes or spend your weekend reading a bunch of Linux man pages. Like It's worth developing very deep understanding for things. And it's possible to actually understand everything that happens in that thing. And it's not as hard as it seems, but it is hard. So just expect it to take a lot of time and put in the effort and it's worth it. Yeah. Computer science is interesting in that unlike other fields, you are, it's like fully built up bottom up, whereas we're still like, I don't know, in neuroscience, like we still don't really know what's going on at that, at that base level. Yeah. And next is what have you recently changed your mind on? <laughs> I saw that you always ask this question and I thought about it a little bit ahead of time and I was like, oh, maybe it's all right. one one thing is oh, I've changed my mind quite a bit and pride myself on changing pretty quickly. I was like, oh, maybe I'll, I'll use that idea. Oh, the idea of strong opinions weekly held. And so I went and looked it up to see who did this come from? And then I the first thing I clicked on was this blog post being like, oh, that's totally wrong. And that blog post actually changed my mind. And I was like, oh, maybe I shouldn't use strong opinions weekly held anymore. But then at a meta level, did I really change my mind? I don't know. But the point of the blog post, which I thought was cool, was it's better to express things at, or it's like more actionable to think about it as expressing like your level of confidence and expressing it as a bet instead of like strong opinions weekly held doesn't tell you how to do that. Um, it just tells you to change your mind sometimes, but like, how do I do that? And instead of thinking of things as bets, it's, oh, like that tells me how to do that. So I thought that was cool. That's a funny story. Yeah. It, was that on Less Wrong? It sounds familiar. No, it was on Cog something, some blog. I don't remember. I just saw it this morning when I was looking looking it up, but I was wondering where this uh, phrase came from. <laughs> Great. I'm sure I can find it. And lastly, what's an important truth that very few people agree with you on? I think an, an easy one actually is related to well, what we're working on. I think intelligence, a lot of people, intelligence and consciousness, all of these problems, they like seem so hard and so impossible. But I think as we started digging into them, there's 
They are, the brain is definitely complex. There's a lot going on here. It's very difficult. However, there's a lot of neural networks that do a lot better than us at a lot of tasks. And actually, this problem might turn out to be a lot simpler than people expect. It's complicated in like the number of different things that are going on. When you really think about it, like everyone in your class, no matter how good their grades were, they all learned about, even the dumbest kid learned about gravity, right? Everyone learned that. And so biology is set up, it's just so robust. Everyone learns all these things. That's really amazing. It's so robust. And, that's, and it, it runs on 35 watts. Like your brain does not consume very much electricity. So I think it might end up being a much simpler sort of algorithm and problem than people really expected. And so that's our hypothesis. And we're going to just keep actually working on doing exactly that and see how far we get. That it certainly sparks a lot of intrigue, and I hope it does for the audience too. And so that's a good place to end the conversation there. Of course, if they want to find out more about everything that you and your company are doing, it is generally intelligent.ai, and that will be in the description below so they can go check that out. So again, Josh Albrecht, thank you so much for joining me. Thanks a lot, Charlie. It's been a pleasure. Thank you so much for listening. It is a huge honor to be able to bring you these conversations. If you want to learn more about anything mentioned in this podcast, visit our website, mlengineered.com to view detailed show notes and sign up for our email list, where every week I send out the best of what I've found that will help you become a better machine learning researcher, engineer, or entrepreneur. That's mlengineered.com. Thank you.